Peekaboo. Hello, good morning, Kentucky. My name is Jane, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm so happy to be here at this 71st convention. I, I mean, it blows my mind when I think about 71 years you guys have had this going on. Like, that's since I was 11. I mean, that's a long time ago. So, um, so anyway, it's such a pleasure to be here. And um, I want to first start out by thanking uh, so many people. But first and foremost, I want to thank Ed back there. And I'm getting a little choked up because talk about history and, you know, the, the possessor of so many uh, stories that get dispersed to God knows where. But um, I want to thank Ed for inviting us, me and James, and, um, and also for all the many years of service that you've um, contributed to this program. So I want to give Ed a special shout-out. And, of course, I want to thank the lovely Liza, who has been busy this weekend, um, and the entire committee. This has been, I mean, a well-greased wheel. So thank you to everyone who's put so much time and effort into this. I know I'm the last speaker, the sweep-up, so uh, I'd really like to give them another round of applause. And Mo for picking us up at the airport. Mo's been such a joy to be around. So thank you, Mo. Um, yeah, let's give Mo a hand. Yeah, Mo. I know. And um, and also, I want to thank the many friends that we have here. Um, uh, you know, of course, I have to mention Dick A, who is one of our favorites, and we go way back. As a matter of fact. Um, one of the first speaking engagements I had around 20 years ago, Dick invited me, and I had to get permission from my probation officer to leave the state to go to this. <laughs> so we had a good laugh about that, you know. So thank you, Dick, for all you do. Uh, and I also want to thank our new friends, Jesse and Lisa. You know, you guys took us, we all had a great lunch together, and it's such a pleasure to meet you. And our friends, Don and Patty, we go way back to. And, um, and also, uh, this is for James because he forgot. Chris and Melissa, one of James's sponsees, and I'm so happy to finally meet you. I was telling Chris, I always see his name flashing up on the on, the, on James's cell phone. <laughs> so it's nice to finally meet you in person. And um, and all the speakers, oh my gosh, have they been top shelf? No, uh, yeah, no pun intended. Top shelf speakers. And uh, you know, I I'll tell you something. Um, you know, it was really emotional for me to see Corey give her final talk yesterday. She is by far and away my favorite Al-Anon speaker. And one of the reasons why is because she speaks straight from the heart. And I witnessed last night Lyle. Oh, my gosh. I'm getting choked up right now because, again, his powerful message that comes straight from his heart. That's what, that's what I love hearing when speakers get behind the podium. So thank you for doing that. And that's my hope that I, you all hear me speaking with the language of my heart this morning. And last but not least, my favorite speaker, James L., uh, who happens to be my husband. And, uh, and let me tell you, um, I'm getting choked up. I don't know why, because it's just been such an emotional weekend. But 
Talk about the real deal. That's James. I aspire to be a member of AA, like my husband. You know, he is, he sponsors people from all over the world. He is so in it after 39 years of sobriety. You know, I mean, to me, that's just mind-blowing. So um, I, I love you so much, and one of the greatest gifts of sobriety is, is meeting you and, um, and being your life partner. So, yeah, so thank you, James, for another Talk Straight from the Heart. <laughs> okay, I think that's all my thank yous. So, um, so anyway, uh, I thought it would be nice because it's Sunday morning to um, start with a prayer. So how about we all say um, the third step prayer together? God, I offer myself to thee to deal with me and be as they will. Take away my difficulties so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would have. Thy power, thy love, and thy way of and do thy will always. Amen. And yes. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Um, and also, this is my prayer, that my meditation prayer this morning that I just loved. Uh, dear God, help me remain ready for the unexpected. In these tumultuous times, help me remain calm and open to receiving whatever comes my way with peace and intention. Amen. All right, so once again, my name is Jane, I'm an alcoholic, and (laughs) hi everyone, and thanks to this program, to my faith, uh, and my family who uh, welcomed me back into their fold, Um, I have not had a drink since September 24th of 1996. Woo! Miracle, let me tell you. Uh, my home group is Central Group in Tallahassee, Florida, and um, I always like to say right out of the gate that my drinking run lasted 14 years, uh, and I'm so grateful for this non-religious spiritual journey that we're all on together. You know, and I forgot one big thank you, and that's to all of you because you all have taught me how to live truthfully and honestly and lovingly. And this all wouldn't be happening if you all didn't get up this morning and say, I'm going to a meeting. So thank you to all of you for being here today. Give yourselves a round of applause. I always think how lucky we are that we have this set of spiritual principles and practices to live by that we can implement into our lives at, at any given moment, you know. And, uh, yeah, these are tumultuous times. And um, how lucky that we can live in the midst of this crazy world right now and be okay. You know, like uh, one of the, my favorite sayings is everything's not going to be okay. Everything is okay. You know, as long as we continue to live in the present moment, everything is okay. You know, uh, one of my mantras over the last few years have, has been, if you want peace, be peace, right? So that's what I really strive to do. And, um, and that, of course, is a direct result of this program. And um, so a couple of things that I wanted to just share out of the gate, like I also am not from Flo- Tallahassee, Florida. You can probably tell from my accent, I'm a Jersey girl. <laughs> You know, I come from the great state of New Jersey, and uh, 
Um, yeah, I'm very proud of it. Um, I, I just want you to know that for me, until the pain got strong enough, I wasn't going to change, you know? Um, I feel like, you know, uh, in, in, it's the case in so many of us, right? We, we kind of get to this point in our lives where we have nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. And that's what happened to me, and that's one of the biggest blessings. And being on the other side of my tragedy, I can see that it, it wasn't God pushing me away. It was actually God drawing me closer to him, her, them. And um, so, yeah, so I am so lucky for everything. And one of the main spiritual principles that I like to live by is that when you give, you get back. And that's why I'm standing before you today. um, I'm one of those people that doesn't necessarily like doing this, but but I feel like uh, if there's a newcomer here, you know, I might be able to give you a little bit of hope, and that makes it all worth it. So... So anyway, uh, let me get started with my story. I'm going to pretty much stick to what we're supposed to stick to, share a little bit about what I was like, and then what happened, and what I'm like now. And um, I always love you know, talking about my childhood and my uh, family. I come from a big Irish Catholic family. My mom and dad had seven kids, and uh, they're about to celebrate their 65th wedding anniversary in May. So, yeah, unbelievable, you know, and so I've had um, an example of really a a loving uh, family. There's, you know, one of the reasons why I love hearing people's stories is because we hear it all, right? I mean, you know, there's nothing that that leads us down this road, really. It's pretty random, you know. One thing is, we all know, is it doesn't discriminate, you know, but I grew up surrounded by love and nurturance, and I still ended up here, you know. Um, I, uh, I always believed in God. We were the family that took up a whole pew and mass every Sunday. And, um, and actually I'm one of those Catholics that is proud to be a Catholic, you know, and, um, I, I feel like, I feel like everything that I learned from the nuns and priests when I was growing up and my parents are all the principles of our program, you know? So I knew the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, and I took that detour anyway, you know? Um, but a little bit about my, um, my family. I always like to boast about my dad a little bit. I'm so proud of my dad. He was actually favored to be the first to break the four-minute mile in track and field. And, um, and he missed it. Are you ready? He ran a 4.00.02. <laughs> but he was one of the great uh, first set of milers from Villanova University. And, um, and I always like to share this story, too. Um, the New York Times does uh, an, an article on the 10 best moments ever in Madison Square Garden uh, every year. And, um, and my dad always makes that list because... It was back in, I think, 1956, and it was Madison Square Garden was full, you know, but that was back in the days when track and field was a big spectator event. And, um, and he was favored to break the four-minute mile that night. So it was my dad and um, these two other contenders, right? So they come around the final stretch, the final straightaway, and um, my dad was, you know, going to take the lead, and as he was going to pass, the other guy elbowed him off the track, which automatically uh, dis- disqualified him. 
my dad gets on the track, back on the track, grabs the guy by the shorts, pulls him, and they start start having a fight on the track. And then, and then the guy that was in third blew by and uh, won, won the race. And family legend has it that you could have heard a pin drop in Madison Square Garden. And then you hear my grandfather from the stands, who is like a boxer from Brooklyn, shout, Take him out back now, Freddie, and finish him off. <laughs> but I share that story because it just shows, like, you know, my uh, one set of grandparents are immigrants, my other set of uh, great-grandparents are immigrants. So it's this feisty Irish, scrappy, you know, but also you got to do whatever you got to do. And my dad has that sense of focus, discipline, work ethic. I mean, oh, my gosh. And he instilled that into all of us. So, um, and I used it in my party days to quite the advantage. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so we went to Catholic schools. I went to an all-girl Catholic high school. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm gonna, you're, you'll hear me drop one name tonight, today, and that is I, one of my close friends in high school was Whitney Houston. And I actually smoked my first joint with Whitney. Uh, not many people can say that. Um, and I have a feeling she's smiling and laughing down from heaven, sh- you know, share- that I'm sharing that. Because um, let me tell you, I am so grateful that I knew Whitney before the end of her innocence. And I wish that she found what we all have, you know. So, um, so anyway, that's to honor her and her memory. Um, and, uh, yeah, otherwise I was a pretty good kid in high school. You know, um, I didn't start drinking until much later. But I did have one incidence of drinking, and I'm going to tell you about it. A lot of speakers love sharing their uh, first drink story. I'm going to share mine. I was 14, and my older cousin uh, was 18. She, she and a bunch of her friends decided to take their little, her little 14-year-old cousin to the movies and get her drunk, right? So we got two bottles of rum, and we're in the movies, and they kept dumping rum into my Coke. And I love the symbolism of this. The movie was the original Star Wars. <laughs> and I just remember sitting in my seat just like, whoa, oh my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, and I was flying around intergalactically with Han Solo and that Millennium Falcon. And I'm telling you, it took me out of this world and put me in this whole other dimension. And I loved it. I loved the outrageousness of it. I loved how it felt. I loved everything about it. But like so many of us, you heard all, all different varieties of the, the reaction after their first drunk. I, it, I got sick as a dog, and I was like, oh, my God, I am never doing that again, you know? And so, in other words, I come from the ilk of I already felt whole and complete and loved but I did, that, that first drink left a deep imprint in my brain. I wanted to be outrageous. I wanted to take it next level. And I went for that every single time I drank. It was almost as if with that experience, plain Jane was gone. Enter extraordinary Jane. And, you know, I wanted people, when I walked into the room, to be like, oh, yeah, the party's about to begin. Jane's here, you know. And I went for that every time I drank. So I'm going to fast forward to my, when my drinking began. It was really college. And so um, I went to Manhattan College, and this is in the 1980s. 
And uh, yeah, it was every, it, okay. I always love to sing a little sign, uh, a little ditty from the Eagles. It was everything all the time, life in the fast lane, and that's how I lived my my college years. I mean. I had access 24-7 to the biggest, baddest city in the world. The kids today call it FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. I mean, I was out every single night. At this point, I was still really more or less addicted to the social life than the actual substances. But with time, oh, man. And uh, I know we're not supposed to have an opinion on outside issues, but I have one. I absolutely loved them. (laughs) Oh, man, did I love cocaine. Did I love smoking weed? But far and away, drinking was my best friend. And, and those other things just sort of amplified my drinking and enabled me to drink until, you know, I don't know, 8 a.m. or whatever, you know, until uh, <laughs> I rolled in, got a shower, and went to class. Um, but so that was like, I don't know, I, I, I feel like that being in New York City in the 80s and living through it is a miracle in and of itself. And, um, and so, yeah, the, way, the best way that I would explain myself during those years is I was a risk-taking, rule-breaking, hell-raising, 100% rock and roll, woo! And, uh, and I did everything to live that rock and roll lifestyle. You name the band, I saw them in Madison Square Garden. I actually partied with quite a few of them. Um, it was just one of the. It was just a crazy, chaotic time. Let me tell you, I had this fear of living a half-lived life, so my my life began to be lived on self-sufficiency, self-reliance. Um, you know, and I prided myself on uh, getting through all these risky behaviors and coming out on my feet. You know. And um, I always chose drinking men. Uh, I always chose, but but to tell you the truth, like my college years, it was all about my girls. You know, uh, we were we were out clubbing. And by the way, this is the time of the club times of like Studio Fifty Four, the Peppermint Lounge. <laughs> I see some head shaking. You know, um, you know, one of my claims to fame is I saw the Ramones and the Talking Heads at CBGBs. You know, I mean, I, let me tell you, I was out there. And um, and I because of that crazy work ethic, seriously, I would roll home, take a shower, and go to class because that's what my father, you know, kind of taught us. Like, you know, sh- yeah, play hard, but work hard too, and follow through on your commitments. So um, so anyway, you get the picture. Um, and I I'm gonna zip through. I had my I had many geographic changes, but my first one was uh, when I was a junior in college. I got accepted to go uh, study in France. So I remember thinking when I left, okay, uh, New York is killing me. I got I to gotta calm down, right? Uh, and even, even my brothers were like, Jane, man, you got to chill. You are out of control. And, um, and I was like, don't worry. I'm sowing my wild oats. I'll be fine. Just leave me alone. And um, so I uh, went to France, and I thought, clean slate. Nobody knows me. I'm going to start fresh, take my studies seriously. And I ended up living with a French family who had a 19-year-old nanny living with them. And we <laughs> tore up that little city of Nantes just like I was tearing up New York City. And, um, and so, you know, that was on. And, and then I, I got this, like, this was really the rebel in me, too. You know, good Catholic girls were supposed to, you know, live home and stay home and get married and have kids, yada, yada, yada. 
And I just wanted to see the world. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted to, you know, explore the world. So I got to backpack through Europe that summer. And um, I always like to share. I remember I had $300. I had the train pass to go anywhere I wanted in Europe, you know, the Eurail pass. And I had 300 bucks to last me for a month and a half. Well, I spent the first 150 in Amsterdam loading up for my magical mystery tour. And, uh, and the second half, I got my hair done in London. Uh, you know, and this was 1984, so you should have seen it. Every once in a while, I wish we had like a video, uh, like, you know, pictures in the back so I could tell the story with the uh, pictures. But, um, so, and it, you know, it was the punk rock, I mean, new wave, whatever. And, um, but I had the time of my life. Don't you love an AA when people are like, oh, Jane, you just think you were having the time of your life. I'm like, no, I was having the time of my life, believe me. And I learned everywhere I went, I magnetized party people. You know, we know each other, you know. So, so anyway, get back to New York. You know, uh, think once again, settle down. By this time, my family stopped inviting me to family functions, uh, you know, because I would always act the fool at weddings or whatever and, um, and embarrass my parents. You know, you know the drill. And um, I remember one time my, um, well, anyway, uh, I then started to do something that's probably not unique to any of us. I started doing things at my family. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you think I'm not bad? Watch this. And I would go out that night and do something that was really self-harmful and severely risk-taking to get back at them. You know, I mean, so that became like a cycle of mine. Um, Okay, so move back. uh, Senior year, start dating the biggest Coke dealer on campus. Uh, You know, things just got out of control. And I graduated um, with, uh, I was a a French and an English high school teacher. So um, anyway, I uh, moved to a city called Hoboken, New Jersey, which, by the way, Hoboken has the Guinness Book of World Records uh, record for having the most amount of bars in one square mile. And uh, so, yeah, so I, um, I got an, a job uh, working at, uh, at an Irish pub at night, and during the day, I taught high school. And I'm telling you, the days turned into nights, the nights turned into days, and yeah. And I could talk about teaching high school and the, and the conditions that I taught in for like the next, I don't know, hour, but I, I'm, also, I'm still kind of afraid I could get arrested for that, uh, so... <laughs> I'm not going to mention any of those stories, but um, but anyway, it was crazy, and um, and I I'll just cut this part short. But I um, lost three jobs teaching high school in three years, and had another great idea for another geographical change. So I moved to Japan. I was like, uh, you know, and by, oh, and by this time, all of the lines that I thought I would never cross, I slowly but surely started to cross. One of them was that last year teaching high school, I was. Uh, dating a married teacher that I worked with, um, and I needed to get away from him, so I moved far, far away. Plus, with the situation with my family, it's like, I am getting away from you and moving far, far away. You'll miss me when I'm gone. Watch. Yeah, right. Uh, So I moved to Japan, and um, again, it was like just crazy town. I got a great job teaching English to... Um, managers of Toyota. So I basically lived in Toyota City, and I had to live in a training center with them for a month. 
It was all Japanese businessmen who were about to get shipped overseas. So we, it, they had to be immersed in English, so we had to eat breakfast together, lunch together, dinner together, and, of course, went drinking every single night together. And that, you know, that's where the real cultural discussions went down. And, um, and I'll tell you something. Um, that I mentioned Japan because that's when I crossed that silent line into needing a drink when I woke up in the morning just to stop the shakes. I couldn't wait to get to my room at lunch to have a couple drinks to just chill me out to get me through the afternoon. And then at 5.30, it was on. So, um, so anyway, I, that was definitely uh, a, a, a time that I needed to, uh, you know, I, I realized I had a problem. But was I going to do anything about it? No, right? So um, anything, so... Also, when I moved back to the States, I thought, okay, my family will have missed me by now, you know, but forget it. They were like, oh, God, she's home. And, um, and it, was, it was really bad because that started to really make me do some bad stuff, you know. And um, I'll tell you this, um, right when I got home, within a month, I got my first DUI. And, um, and my mom pretty much disowned me. I brought disgrace upon the family. And it was like, oh, well, you know, for, four, for all these years I've been drinking and driving, you know, I knew it would, it would happen sooner or later. And um, I'll just take one for the team. And I lost my license for six months. So this is how I ended up in Florida. I had a friend who um, had a restaurant, and he said, hey, you, you lost your license for six, year, or for six months why don't you come down here and work for me and, um, you know, you, could, uh, you can ride your bike everywhere down here. So, are you ready for this? I kid you not, I had that clean slate mentality again. Nobody knows me except for him. Clean slate, start fresh, do the right thing, get away from alcohol, get away from drugs. So I moved down to the Florida Keys. <laughs> Needless to say... That experiment was a disastrous failure. And, uh, you know, the Florida Keys is actually where I really hit the skids, you know. Um, that's where I, you know, so many of the speakers this weekend talked about that incomprehensible demoralization. I couldn't even keep a job as a waitress or a hostess. And um, I remember being, uh, and I became homeless, and I remember walking around barefoot, with like a bottle of Papa vodka at all times. Forget about uh, snorting cocaine. I was smoking crack. And I just was on like this, this uh, I like to call it like this road to self-destruction. I call these my fade to black months. You know, it was like I didn't have the courage to take my own life, but I thought I'd blow my heart up or do a leaving Las Vegas and drink myself to death, right? And, um, and I almost did. I mean, I had that proverbial look in the mirror and see, like, this skeleton looking back at me. And I had the wherewithal to call one of my cousins who lived in Fort Lauderdale, and she came and got me. And, you know, and, I, and by this time, I wasn't even talking to my siblings because they all, it was just too painful for them. And, um, but I tried to get it together, and I met a guy. Uh, yeah, and he was actually really cool. He was living over in Austria at the time. And I was, I was temping in Fort Lauderdale, 
at um, Delta Dream Vacations. So he was trying to sell like his adventure tour package to Delta Dream Vacations. And I remember our first date, we went skydiving. I mean, that's like, I still had that crazy risk-taking behavior going on. And, um, and so uh, he came into town once a month. You know, he was selling like ex-adventure tour package to Delta Dream Vacations over in Europe, like crazy things like glacier climbing and, you know, um, high-risk vacation packages kind of thing. So this was right up my alley. And, um, and so this one weekend he came into town and he said, hey, why don't we go down and check out the water sports down in the Florida Keys? And I was like, oh, God, the Florida Keys is where I really, I mean, it's a, it's a, it represents a really dark time in my life, and I'm just kind of getting out of that tunnel. But, okay, let's go. You know, let's go. So we get down there, and we're driving down, and I swear the first, the first tiki bar we came to uh, went in and had a load of drinks, and we did that as we progressed down to Marathon Key. And I was wasted by the time we got down there. And it was like, okay, well, uh, a friend of mine's band is playing. Let's go see the band. And so anyway, we went and we watched the sun set, and it was so beautiful that about 2, 3 in the morning I said, I have another great idea. Let's go back there and watch the sun come up. So we had, you know, I think we had a case of beer, a bag of weed, and I thought that would be cool, you know. And uh, so we're going down this road. It was like a, it was actually, they had just filmed that movie True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, you know, at the, at the end of the movie, they blow that bridge up. Well, um, I didn't know that that was the bridge that we were on. And, um, and I remember I looked at Max and I said, Man, where is this bridge going to? It said it said authorized vehicles only, but I was like, vehicles, let's just go. So we're, I was like, where is this going to? It's like this bridge to nowhere. And all of a sudden, bam! I went barreling in to the concrete barrier. And on the other side of the barrier was the water. And I barreled into that thing head on going about 40 miles an hour. And I remember as soon as I, you know, the, the, the thunderous crash, I still hear it in my, in my head. And I remember, um, I remember thinking when I opened my eyes and I saw fire coming out of the hood and I saw smoke and fumes and it smelled like gasoline. And I was like, oh my God, Max, where did that come from? We got to get out of here. This thing's going to blow. We got to get out of here. And I remember I... I put my hand down to my ankle, and I felt the bones in my ankle. And I couldn't move my whole left side. At that time, I had no idea, but I broke my neck at C1, C2, which, by the way, is the same fracture that Christopher Reeve had. So it's a miracle that I'm standing before you right now. And, and, and my knees hit the dash, so my pelvis was completely shattered. I can't even begin to tell you the pain that I was in and I was like oh my god and I grabbed Max's hand and I was like we got to get out of here we got to get out of here and he looked like he had hit his head and was passed out and meanwhile I'm trying to like figure out how I'm going to wake him up and get us out of this car that's going to blow up and it didn't take me too long before I realized that he wasn't breathing and that he was dead so I'm getting emotional today. 
And I remember thinking, oh my God, please just take me too. How am I going to live with myself? I thought about his family. I thought about my family. I started saying all my Catholic schoolgirl prayers, my act of contrition, you know. I knew it was just a matter of time before I wasn't going to be able to breathe anymore because my my ribs punctured my lungs and my lung collapsed. And I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I couldn't believe that he was dead. So anyway... Um, I think I'm feeling so vulnerable because I felt like this beautiful kinship with all of you this weekend. You know, I usually don't cry like this, but. So anyway, um, I'm going to tell you this story because it really meant a lot to me. Um, I remember the, I was really on my last breaths and I heard, uh, I saw the blue lights in my rear view mirror and I was like, oh my God. The police are here, you know, and, and I'll never forget the kindness that those officers showed me. You know, I thought they'd be like, look at what you did, you dirty drunk driver, you know. And instead, they were so loving and, and so compassionate. And, and several months later, at my first court hearing, that police officer that really found me and saved me actually uh, told me this story. He said, I just want to tell you that I had a life-changing experience that night because I was going down the regular road and it was as if this power tapped me on the shoulder and I literally backed my police car up and I never did this. I went down the old bridge road and it was so powerful that I almost was not surprised to see the crash there at the end. And I was like, oh my God, thank you so much for telling me that because... For the next many years, that helped get me through because I knew God left me here for a reason. And I had to, like, face the challenge of figuring out what that reason was, you know. So that kind of really helped me do that. So anyway, okay, let me try the group. (laughs) Okay, so let me fast forward now. Um, I actually was in the regular... Oh, thank you. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you. So I... um, Let me fast forward to uh, the hospital. So I was in the regular hospital uh, for five months, and then I had to go into a rehab hospital to figure out, like, you know... um, I had to learn how to do everything again. And... um, The judge let me out on my own recognizance to undergo intense physical therapy. And um, so that's when I first started going to my first AA meetings. She said I could, go to, I could leave the house for physical therapy. I could leave the house for um, AA meetings. That's it. So I went to a 7 a.m. AA meeting, and this is in St. Pete Beach, Florida. And let me tell you, those people saved my life, you know, um, my mom bailed on me. She just was so angry and disgusted, and I brought such shame on the family. She was just like, your friends have always been so much, you let your friends take care of you now. And, um, and my dad uh, was there you know, at the hospital until I was out of the woods, and I remember saying, can I come home to New Jersey? And they were like, no, you can't. You're on your own. 
And I was like, okay. Uh, so I moved to St. Pete and a, uh, with a friend, and, um, and I did. I went to that 7 a.m. meeting every morning, and this is what I learned from you all from the very beginning. So if there's any newcomers, I hope that you can hear these things that I'm saying to you right now. Step one is the first step towards the solution, admitting you're powerless over alcohol and that your life had become unmanageable. I mean, I was like, duh, look at me, you know? And um, also, people who loved me said, Jane, you have got to abandon that fierce Irish pride that you have and start living in humility. And, uh, you know, I didn't like that one that much, but I figured I'd give it a go, you know? Um, And I also... Uh, learned things like, I, I liked it to be kept simple. You know, I liked Jane, um, steps one through three is basically um, getting right with God. Steps four through seven is getting right with yourself. And then steps eight through 12 are getting right with people. You know, I really liked that breakdown. I also liked, this program is basically give up, clean up, make up, grow up. I love that one. You know, I was like, okay, I, I, can, I can do that. Um, and, but really, oh, and I loved this one too. There's great power in powerlessness, you know. Uh, but what I learned more than anything is that rigorous honesty. And, um, you know, it's an honest program. I had to stop, I had to drop that mask that I'd been wearing for years. I had to stop rationalizing Stop pointing the finger of blame at everyone else. I mean, actually, the first word I said to my dad from the hospital bed was, Dad, it didn't happen because I was drinking. Can you believe that? (laughs) I'll never forget the look on my dad's face when I said that. So anyway, um, since it was an honest program, uh, against my attorney's uh, advice, I decided to plead guilty. I knew I was going to prison. And, um, and so I pled guilty, and I got sentenced to five years in prison, followed by ten years of probation. Now, I know a lot of you are going to be like, yeah, right, Jane, but I am grateful for the five years that I had in prison. I'm not kidding when I say that. I needed five years to be segregated from society to figure out who I was without drugs and alcohol anymore. It was like going on a mining expedition, you know, and, and um, I liked it because I was free of everything in the external life. And as a result of that, living this really simplified life, I was able to hear the voice of God within and, and really find out who my authentic self was. I mean, I was living out of a footlocker for five years, you know, and, um, and I learned how to abandon pride and I learned how to seek humility and I learned about that, yeah, I was powerless over everything when, I, when you're in prison. Um, I, I also learned how to be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection because that would diminish my usefulness to others. And let me tell you, I met the finest women I've ever met in my life in prison. And if any of you do work in corrections, Thank you, and let's give them a round of applause because, man, I, I look so forward to, to the women who brought the meetings into prison. Um, I, I also, one of the biggest things that I learned was how to cut through those self-deceptions, those lies that we tell ourselves and we really come to believe. 
So, um, so anyway, but I also le- learned how to be tolerant and patient and loving and kind. And I did learn the true value of um, service work. I started a literacy program, and I also helped women prepare for their, um, their GEDs. So um, anyway, I could talk about prison for a really long time, but, uh, but I'm going to cut to the chase and just talk about um, a, an amazing fourth and fifth step that I did in prison with a Catholic priest. Um, but let me talk about step four first. I, um, I made a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. I, I, I gained a lot of self-knowledge from that. I was so stuck in guilt and shame, and I... Rather than go through my, uh, my experience with that, just think about Lyle's last night. Mine was exactly the same. This darkness, this, uh, this shame that I brought on my family, this guilt that I was responsible for abbreviating a precious life. You know, um, but after doing step four, I felt like the light of my soul, which James talked about so beautifully, it, it shined on in the darkness, you know. And I started to see those glimmers again. And I wanted more and more to see that light, you know. So I continued to do that work. And I remember first off, my, the way that I did my fourth step was like an autobiography. Because I wanted whoever it was that was going to hear it to know the context of me. Instead of seeing all the dirt in, in these columns, right? But then, of course, I did the way the book says, made my list of resentments, fears, guilt, sexual behaviors, etc. And talk about humility. Hmm, yeah, that's what that did. And my step five was with a a Catholic priest named Father Dennis. It was his birthday yesterday. He turned 73. I uh, sent him a happy birthday message. He's still in my life all these years later. And and I'll, I'll tell you something. I... God put the right person in my life to do a fifth step with. He, um, after Mass one Sunday in prison, about two years in, he said, ladies, I got permission from the warden to do fifth steps. I'm an alcoholic in recovery. And he was Irish from New Jersey. So it was like a sign. I'm big on signs, right? And I remember the first thing he said to me was, one of my favorite books, Jane, is this book called The Spirituality of Imperfection. And basically the theme of that book is... I'm not okay, you're not okay, and that's okay. So, you know, be vulnerable, don't hold back, lay it on down, receive forgiveness and give it to. Um, and, um, and he shared a lot about God's mercy throughout. And I really needed that. And he also was able to point out my, my uh, self-destructive patterns. And I'll tell you something, for me, step five was my return, marked my return to sanity. Um, and it freed my mind, it freed my heart. Um, he didn't judge me. He cried when I cried. He showed me such unconditional love and compassion. And, um, and really, the nature of all my relationships changed after that step five. So, um, so anyway, I just wanted to, um, to share that. And uh, let me see if I have time to share another. Oh, okay, I do. Um, and also, I wanted to talk a little bit about the power of steps eight and nine while I was in there. Um, you know, God, there's great wisdom in those two steps. You know, it is necessary to go back and to rectify the wrongs if we want to have a future relationship with some of the people that we really harmed. And for me, that was my family. You know, I left a tragic wake, <laughs> but um, what, what meant the most to me was repairing my relationships with my family. 
And, um, and it was hard because, you know, I, I, I remember calling home and I would collect the call and I would hear my mother answer the phone and she would just pass the phone to my father. You know, and my family must have had a family meeting. Okay, I always love share this because they did the tough love thing. They did not send me a penny the whole five years I was in prison. Can you believe that? And my brothers are really well off. Uh, and uh, my, they must have had a family meeting. As a matter of fact, that was a big resentment I had to work through when I was in prison. And um, I, I always say I should have written Orange is the New Black because uh, let me tell you. <laughs> Um, but I, were, I was able, I, I look at that as a gift. It was a, an opportunity to work through two of my biggest character defects, being judgmental and resentments. Being judgmental, this is, this is something. A couple of weeks before my accident, I went out to dinner with a guy who over dinner he shared that he uh, did some time in prison. And I was like, whoa, I'm not going out with this guy again. You know? So, and the resentment with my family uh, not sending me any money or helping me out the whole time I was in prison. Uh, James always loves when I do the imitation of my mother. She, this is probably what my mother said. Well, this is definitely what my mother said. She's like, oh, you think we're going to be sending you in money, in money while you're in prison being punished so you can eat potato chips and drink Coca-Colas? I don't think so. <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, yeah, so it was tough. But let me tell you, I was not going back to prison. You know, I was not going back to prison. So, um, so yeah, so my steps eight and nine were, um, you know, I love how the big book says, the beginning of the end of isolation from our fellows and from God. And that's, that's what my steps eight and nine did for me. I saw on paper talk about humbling, the uh, wreckage that I left in, the, in my wake, and I became willing to do whatever I needed to do to clean my side of the street. And I think it was perfect situation because I wrote letters. Most of them I sent. Some of them I didn't. I worked very closely with my sponsor on the outside to discern who that would be okay with. I know everybody's wondering about, did I do that with his family? Yes, I did. I wrote a letter. I actually wrote two. I wrote one at the sentencing and gave it to them and then I wrote one while I was in prison and I never heard anything back and that kept me boinged up for a long time two years and, um, and finally my sponsor said you know that, that's between them and their God and this is between you and your God and you have to let that go I'm going to take a little side journey right now and let you know what happened during COVID I got an email from somebody, and they said, is this Jane who was in the accident with Max? I'm Max's roommate from college. And I was like, so I wrote him back, and I said, yeah, this is that Jane. I, you know, I, I am so uh, grateful that you reached out to me, and I can talk to you if you want to talk. And he said, I would love to talk to you. Can I call you tonight at 9? And I, so I, I looked at James, and I was like, oh, my God, you know. So anyway, uh, when he sent the email back, we set the time up at 9, and he wrote, P.S., I'm a friend of Bill's. So uh, all these years later, 26 years later, I was able to make amends to someone directly who represented him. And I was able to say, you know, I'm so sorry for what happened with your friend. I was responsible. So you know what I mean? It's like when you least expect it, the miracles of this program still happen, you know? So, um, so anyway, I, I feel like I was really blessed to uh, finally 
have a good step eight and nine with somebody who was directly related to him and get a verbal, you know, hey. And he told me some things that I really needed to hear. But I did. I took the steps to do the eight and nine while I was in there because, man, I broke a lot of hearts. I broke a lot of laws. I had to make a lot of amends. And, um, and so why do we make amends? We make amends so we can let go and we can change and then go on to live our best lives. And so when I did those step nines, I resolutely committed to doing whatever actions were necessary in order to gain forgiveness and build trust, right? Okay, so let's talk about when I got out of prison. Let me tell you, I got signs right away. As a matter of fact, I got out, the day I got out, I dropped my stuff off. Oh, let me tell you about this sign. So I got into a taxi cab, and I had like a hefty bag of all my stuff, and uh, this song came on the radio, and I could not believe the song that was on the radio. And I started crying, and the cab driver was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I just got out of prison after five years. I can't believe they're playing this song. And it was, I'm as free as a bird now. You know, free bird! Right? So anyway... So I couldn't believe it. And then I dropped my stuff off and I went to Central Group, my first AA meeting. And guess who was there? The women who brought the meetings into prison. They were like, when did you get out? I was like, today. They were like, what? Oh, my God. So that was another sign. I mean, it's just unbelievable, the signs that I started to get. And, um, and this is just the way that my life has rolled since I've been out. And um, I want to tell you a couple of uh, incredible uh, stories. So, uh, one of the okay, about a month after I got out, okay, I, I lost my license for life. Um, I had to go to therapy once a month. I had to do two thousand hours of community service. This was all, and this is part of my probation. And are you ready for this one? I had to go to an AA meeting every day for ten years. <laughs> That was from my judge. And, uh, okay, can I take another little aside story? I got asked to speak at uh, a gratitude dinner down in the Florida Keys. And this was 20 years after the accident. And the woman who picked me up at the airport worked for the court system. And she told the judge who sentenced me. And the judge came to the gratitude dinner and heard my story. And it was incredible. I cried. James was there. I mean, I cried. She cried. We hugged. And I thanked her for, uh, for the five, giving me five years in prison because I really feel that saved my life. And, uh, and I joked. I said, now the ten years of probation I could have done with that. And, but, um, but, yeah, so, um, so anyway, you get what I, I, I really, I think the system, you know, sets you up for failure. You know, I mean, that's pretty crazy. But I was not going back to prison. So I got um, an apartment near the AA house in Tallahassee, and, you know, I did everything that I was asked to do. But my therapist said, we're going to a women's AA convention and, and next, next week, and we got two carloads of women and, women, and you're going. Now, I had no idea what conventions were about. I was like, an AA convention for women? That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. And I had just gotten out of prison, so I was like, I don't want to do that, you know? But I went. And I'll never forget the first woman speaker that I heard. I couldn't believe she was up at the podium laying it all out. 
She was this little older woman with white curly hair, and she's talking about, you know, uh, being a, an alcoholic mom and neglecting and abusing her children. And, you know, and I was like, man, I can't believe the honesty this woman is, t- is talking. Well, guess what? That woman today is my mother-in-law. It's Jane, James's mother. So this is like God's hand working in my life before I even knew it, you know. But, um, but anyway, um, getting back to, um, you know, how I went about rebuilding my life, um, I tried to get my teaching certification back. They said, you will never teach again. And I was like, okay, well, uh, what else can I do? And I said, if I live through this, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to love and service. And so I decided what I, I got sent on work release in, in Tallahassee. So that's where I just started to rebuild my life. Florida State University's there. I said, let me go back to grad school and become a social worker. So I got denied the first time because of my felony conviction. I got denied the second time because of my felony con- conviction. But the third time, I got in. And, um, and I remember, you know, some of the jobs that I, like I was working as a housekeeper at a hotel. Somebody else was talking, it was Lyle was talking about, you know, when you have a felony, Oh, man, it's like a dark cloud hanging over you. It's, it's getting better these days, thank goodness. But, you know, 20 years ago, it was like, a, you know, you, you had a rough time even getting... I even had a rough, job getting a, a rough time getting a job as a housekeeper at the hotel. So, um, so anyway, I went back to school, and I worked full-time. I, you know, rode my bike everywhere, I, but I had to... I worked from... 7 a.m. to 3, then I went to my AA meeting, and then I went to night school. For two years, I did that. And I, and I, prom- I said to everyone, give me a chance, and I won't let you down. And I never let anyone down. And I remember saying stuff like, where would any of us be without forgiveness? Where would any of us be without a second chance? So once again, if you're new, say that stuff, because you'll find that people really want to be part of a success story. Just don't let them down, you know? And... Um, and so then I got my, my MSW. My first job was working in a detox. Can you believe how perfect is that? And then, uh, and then I'm just going to make this really fast because I'm approaching the end of my time. I think I have five minutes left. Um, so I uh, got out and, uh, or I got out of uh, that job being working in detox. I became the supervisor of social services and then a miracle happened. I got a call from the dean at the College of Social Work to see if I would be interested in a full-time faculty position. Can you believe that? So I just, I've been there now since 2008. I just got my third and final promotion, but I am a professor at Florida State University in their College of Social Work. It's unbelievable. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, and so now I'll, uh, I'll just tell you about some other random miracles. You know, James talked about how we met. He wanted me to tell the story about how we met. So I started, uh, you know, do, telling my story probably in like, you know, uh, 2005 or something like that. And I didn't do it that much. But I got asked to speak at the Florida State Convention in 2009. I was like, oh, my God. You know, I, how am I going to speak in front of those crowds? And I know, oh my God, it was my first big one, you know what I mean? And, um, and so this speaker gets up there and he starts talking about, you know, 
he dropped out of school. He loved Led Zeppelin. He, you know, was moved to California. He was like this hippie-looking dude or whatever. And um, and it was James telling his story. And I remember after I was like, me and this guy would have been in trouble together. So I remember going up to him at the line to say thank you. And as soon as the person before me moved aside and James and I came face to face, he took my breath away. And I was like, I'm going to be with this guy for the rest of my life. <laughs> and then I looked down and I saw a wedding ring on his finger. And I was like, darn it! I was wrong. And, but anyway, he was, um, you know, he'll, I'll tell the story. He actually was getting out of He asked his mother that morning, because his mom was speaking at that too. He's like, Mom... You know, my marriage has been bad for a while. I'm thinking about leaving. What do you think about that? And they had that conversation. Well, then um, we became Facebook friends, and he lived in Chicago when I was in Tallahassee. And um, I guess it was about five years later, I hear through the AA grapevine, I'm like, oh, Polly's so upset. She's uh, Her son James is going through a really terrible divorce. And I was like... <laughs> I was like, oh, that's too bad. I knew it. And uh, so sure enough, um, Polly lives in Jacksonville, so James uh, was visiting his mom, and he's like, do you think I should call Jane and see if she wants to have lunch? And he did. We had lunch, we had dinner, and it's been on ever since. And we got married in 2016, and I had my dream wedding and um, it really, it's just, I can't believe, like, at, at, you know, in my 50s, I finally met the one that I thought I would never meet, you know. But I was fine on my own, too. I want to say that to anyone who's single. There's a lot to the single life, too, you know. But, yeah, but I, I, um, I feel so fortunate that we're traveling this road together. Um, I was able to rebuild my relationship with my family. Um, as I as I mentioned, um, that that means the world to me. Uh, my mom is so proud of me right now. You know, you should hear her telling everybody she's a professor now. She's a professor now. <laughs> and um, and yeah, just so many things I, I could tell you. I could tell you miracle after miracle after miracle. But I want to tell you um, a couple of the latest. You know. Um, Back in, uh, my mother has become my biggest fan. And I got hit by a car on my bike, and I also got hit by another biker. And both of them were, you know, not serious accidents, but they could have been. And my mother's like, this is not justice. You know, you've been driving, what do they expect you to be driving your bike everywhere when you're an old lady? I mean, you know, this is crazy. So she started, like, getting, uh, writing letters to the governor of New Jersey because I had that first DUI. And I found out that Jersey doesn't expunge DUIs. Um, so I had that first DUI, So I, and then, of course, the DUI manslaughter in Florida. Well, I found out that if I could get rid of that first DUI in Jersey, it would open up for me to have a hardship license. So she started writing Governor Chris Christie, like, oh, my God. She, she, so anyway, of course, the gatekeeper kept saying, thank you, Mrs. Dwyer, for your... Well, so all of a sudden... Out of nowhere, I get a call from three of Governor Christie's uh, attorneys. And I'm like, oh, my God, James, my mother's letters must have got through. You know, and, um, and they grilled me for well over an hour. And they asked me stuff like, how many times do you think you drank and drove? 
And you know, I took a deep breath and took a gulp, and I was like, probably every time I drove for about 14 years, and there was like radio silence on the other end of the car. But I wasn't going to lie, you know. And sure enough, 6 o'clock on his last night in office, the phone rings. Hello, Jane, this is Governor Chris Christie from New Jersey. I was like, what? Oh, my God, oh, my God. And he goes, listen, I just want to let you know you make the great state of New Jersey proud. I, uh, I, you know, that program that you're involved in, I have a great deal of respect for. You keep doing whatever it is that you're doing, and, um, and I'm giving you that pardon to open up the door for you to get a license. So I'm driving again, and it's unbelievable. <laughs> I'm still blasting my rock and roll, too. And, uh, and, and then another big thing was I was able to vote for the first time in 24 years at the last presidential election. And, um, you know, Lyle and I were, talk, were talking about it at breakfast this morning. It's like a lot of my friends were like, why have you been fighting so hard for that? Does that really matter that much to you that you, you know, are able to vote? And I was like, it's just one of those subtle things that society's basically telling you you're still not good enough. You still haven't served your time. You're still less than. So, yes, it means a lot to me to have a voice in society. It makes me feel like I'm whole and complete. So, um, so that's another amazing miracle that, uh, that has recently happened. And, um, and I think I'm going to close there. I just wanted to... Um, to end this by saying, you know, if you're new, it is never, ever too late to be the person that you were truly meant to be, you know, and, and always, always remember that the higher power within you is far greater than any fear before you. And thank you so much, Kentucky, for having us and for loving us this weekend.